to the Feminist Coffee Hour podcast, tackling the political arubarus from the feminist outer boroughs of New York City. You can find us online at feministcoffeehour.com. You can find us at Feminist Coffee Hour on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, at Fem Coffee Pod on Twitter, Feminist Coffee Hour at gmail.com, and you can find us on patreon.com slash feministcoffeehour. I'm Karen. And I'm Elizabeth. And today our guest is Catherine Stewart, the author of The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. She has been following this movement for over 10 years, and her previous book, The Good News Club, The Christian Rights Stealth Assault on America's Children, came out in 2012. She contributes to the New York Times op-ed, The New Republic, The New York Review of Books, The Guardian, and many others. Welcome to the show, Catherine. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about this book and how you came to write it? Sure. The book is about how Christian nationalism really isn't on the fringes of American political life anymore. It's at the center of power, and it now poses a real danger to our republic. So my book pulls back the curtain on the inner workings and leading personalities of the movement, and it shows how they've built the movement and turned religion into a tool for political power. Now, I used to pay a lot of attention to the Christian right and the threat of theocracy to America, but I admit I've kind of slacked off on it a bit since the Bush administration. Can you tell me what's changed since about 2004, 2006-ish? Sure. I mean, let's start with the 2016 election. Trump got elected by making a deal with this cohort, with Christian nationalists, and as a result, he won by a higher share of their vote than any of uh, his Republican predecessors and he's really worked overtime to repay them for their loyalty. When I was researching the book, I went to strategy meetings and gatherings of the religious right of, you know, summits and all the meetings that they have. And he often speaks at the events and points out that he is repaying them for their loyalty. He says, I think I'm giving you everything that you asked for. And in fact, I think I'm giving you more. You know, he promotes their so-called religious freedom agenda by promising them a steady flow of federal dollars, appointing judges favorable to their interests, working to make it possible for conservative religious groups to discriminate against people, you know, whose quote-unquote lifestyles offend them. And they, in turn, have elevated his presidency to a level of biblical prophecy. I mean, I think if Bush was maybe a say three or four on a scale of theocracy, Trump is more like an eight. Wow. That's terrifying. They don't mind the kind of obvious cynicism in that, in that Donald Trump is not a man that lives by biblical values, obviously. Well, you know, I think that the movement is incredibly strategic, and in some ways the, the politics leads the religion rather than the reverse. I mean, they obviously work together, but the movement is incredibly strategic and constantly impressed me when I was uh, researching this. They you know, spent hundreds of millions of dollars over decades building legal advocacy organizations and activist groups and think tanks. They know that a lot of their victories come through the courts. So, you know, a lot of the movement strategy comes from organizations like the Alliance Defending Freedom, whose leaders have asserted that our law should be based on their interpretations of the Bible rather than on longstanding democratic and uh, constitutional principles. I've been to events where 
speakers will get up and say, this election is all about judges, judges, judges. They really know that a lot of their aims are advanced through the courts. But beyond that, look, this is an anti-democratic movement. This is not a movement that believes in pluralism or equality. They often portray themselves as just wanting a seat at the table, but it's not true. They really want to sort of smash the table altogether and replace it with something different. And if you really want to, quote unquote, you know, disrupt democracy and change the system, you know, I think there's something in the authoritarian style of Trump that appeals to them. They seem to long for the hard hand of a despot. In your book, you talk about how Christian nationalists uh, advocate an idea called theonomy. What is theonomy? It's uh, theonomy is a kind of uh, combination of a melding of religion and law. And some of the sources that I spoke to when I was researching the book, I've been writing about this issue for over a decade and people sort of come out and talk to me about it. And some, many of them are people who used to be members of the movement. I first heard the term theonomists from some of them who said that, you know, they see this as a real uh, combination of a very sort of hyper conservative version of the Christian religion and law. And um, it does point to the fact that so much of the strategy actually comes from the legal legal activists and legal strategists. One thing that I was really interested in in reading your book is that a lot of these Christian nationalist talking points are much older than I thought that there's almost a direct line between the Christian nationalists of today and people who use the Bible to justify slavery in the 1800s. I know that you recently had, I believe it was an op-ed about how uh, President Trump used the term government schools in his State of the Union address and how that's like a Christian nationalist dog whistle. But in your book, you explain how that's been around since 1887. Do you want to talk a little bit about government schools and what that means when people refer to that? Sure. Thanks, Elizabeth. That's a really good point. I, among the movement, there's a really long-standing hostility to public ed. They feel that if schools fail to affirm their ideology, they would just like to break the schools. And that uh, hostility has deep roots in our history. And it's, there's a kind of through line between the hostility to so-called government schools that came from the pro-slavery theologians who didn't want to create schools that would educate black children and certainly didn't want uh, black children and white children to attend school together. And the mid-century theologians of the 20th century, like Ruth Suss, John Rushduni, and even that hostility has uh, made its way into some of the more recent uh, theologians. Jory Falwell said in 1979, I hope to see the day when there are no more public schools. Churches will have taken them over and Christians will be running them. Uh, another theologian that uh, received enormous support from the DeVos family, the DeVos and Prince families, his name was um, D. James Kennedy, and he received, I believe it's in excess of $5 million from the DeVos and Prince uh, families, the clans. He asserted that children in public schools were being, quote, brainwashed in godless secularism. These harsh characterizations are, are really common among some of the leading Christian nationalists today. They see public schools as failing to affirm their ideology, and therefore they'd like to simply destroy them. And when it comes to sort of the through line between what happened earlier in our history, you know, when a lot of the hostility to public education 
was explicitly racist. And today, where it's not so much explicitly racist, although it's more uh, framed as an opposition to the promotion of what they see as secularism and critical thinking, the history is in, in many ways repeating itself here. And I think many of the same underlying conflicts and dynamics are still in place in sort of the pre-war and post-war South when Robert Louis Dabney was operating. He's a theologian who sort of railed against public schools. You had a kind of class conflict between upper class whites, kind of plantation owners, right? And then the working class whites who were in many instances very, very poor. And in order to sort of keep the peace amidst these class divisions, whites made scapegoats of the black underclass and public funding for schools was a sore point that they could use to get working class whites sort of on their side. And everybody could sort of, you know, unite, uh, uh, white people could unite against uh, the sort of the, the scapegoat. So I think that same dynamic is playing itself out today. People are just producing the same reactions with a kind of slightly different or more modified language. And if you don't mind, I'd actually like to point to another quote from another pro-slavery theologian named James Henley Thornwell. And this is what he said in, in objecting to abolition. He was, um, as you know, a lot of pro-slavery theologians at the time justified their support for slavery by saying that these sort of um, hierarchies were ordained by God. So here's what Thornwell, he said, the parties in this conflict are not merely abolitionists and slaveholders. They are atheists, socialists, communists, red Republicans, and Jacobins on the one side. Jacobins was a reference to the, um, the French Revolution, the values of the Enlightenment. And he said, and the friends of order and regulated freedom on the other. So he sees the abolitionists as affiliated with atheism, socialism, and the values of the Enlightenment. On the other side, he's saying, we've got order on this side, and on that side, it's a sort of affirmation of the system of slavery. And um, a lot of the, the conflicts that we're seeing today, while the sort of racial politics have changed, there is um, a kind of similar dynamic where you've got people affirming a system based on hierarchies that are supposedly ordained you know, by God, and on the other side, you have sort of regulated order. And you see this, um, especially in the area of gender politics and the opposition to gender equality that uh, the religious right is, is sort of trying to, there's sort of opposition is very strong today. I'd like to ask, has the kind of financial portion of this also had a direct through line from the religious opposition to abolition of slavery? And then uh, with like a, a follow-up of how much of the funding for these operations come from non-taxed religious intake? Those are really great questions. And the answers a little bit, the answers to both questions are a little bit complicated. So I'll start with the funders and the question of the through line. The through line. I mean, obviously, America is very diverse. Wealthy people in America are very diverse politically. But the movement has come to depend critically, sort of Christian nationalist movement has become, you know, come to depend critically on the wealth of a subset of America's plutocratic class, not the whole plutocratic class, obviously, but some number of funders. I discussed many of them in my book, the DeVos Prince family, uh, the Green family, so many others. And they 
are largely, many of them are as committed to right-wing economic policies of low taxation and a minimally regulated economy as they are to right-wing positions on the so-called culture wars. But at the same time, as you mentioned, a lot of the daily activity of the movement's policy organizations involve not only an effort to you know, obtain donations from the rank and file, but also to basically turn right-wing churches into what are essentially partisan political cells by reaching pastors of those churches, getting them into networks, and getting them to communicate to their congregations the so-called you know, right way to vote and the issues that, that should matter when they're at the vote, voting booths. Yeah, people were freaked out by Cambridge Analytica, but according to your book, the amount of information in these databases is staggering. That is absolutely true. <laughs> That's absolutely true. And, you know, all political parties and all ends of the economic, uh, political spectrum now rely on big data to turn out the vote. I think one of the big differences is that in this sphere, a lot of it operates at the top of a kind of in the political, in, I'm sorry, in the religious sphere, which is, of course, tax exempt. So a lot of the initiatives that the religious right is pursuing are an effort to, you know, get right-wing pastors on the same page to, uh, to communicate, giving them the, the tools and messaging to communicate the, the right issues to their voters, but to make it all about, you know, quote unquote, the culture. So, you know, IRS guidelines say that pastors aren't supposed to politic from the pulpit, but if they can, you know, get congregants to do it, or if they're just, you know, talking about issues, then they can say, well, I'm not advocating for a particular political candidate. I'm just talking about, you know, the right to life. I'm just talking about, you know, the defense of marriage and so-called. I mean, they're very clever. They know that if you can get people to vote on one or two issues, you can you can get their vote. Mm -hmm. I know you talked about um, the Prince and DeVos family. Can you just uh, speak to a little bit how the uh, Christian nationalist movement is using charter schools to advance their goals? Well, the charter movement is really diverse. And I think that there are a lot of folks who support charters for a number of really wonderful and honorable reasons. And there are some terrific charters out there. But there is a subsection of the charter universe where the leaders of these charter schools are, are run by people with religious or right-wing ideological agendas, a, a kind of shocking number of them. And uh, in some instances, they're actually putting religious messages into the curriculum, or in some instances, they're a little clever about it. They sort of frame American history through a sort of far-right lens and promote sort of David Barton-style American history. A lot of them promote a kind of right-wing economic agenda through, you know, the way they teach about American exceptionalism and the way they teach about, you know, America's system of commerce and things like that. So even though some of them actually do promote religion through their schools, others just simply promote sort of a lot other right-wing talking points. But again, the charter universe is diverse and uh, a lot of charters don't do that too. So what you mentioned uh, David Barton style histories. Could you elaborate on that? What is that? Oh, well, <laughs> David Barton is a really fun character, and I had so much good time writing about him in my book. Um, for anybody who's not familiar with him, you're going to have a lot of fun learning about him. I call him the <laughs> Waldo of the Christian nationalist movement because he's at the helm of so many different Christian nationalist organizations and initiatives. 
And he's the movement's favorite historian. He promotes a kind of mythological sort of story about America's allegedly Christian founding, in which uh, you know our, our founding fathers were all Bible thumpers and supposedly wanted to create a, a Christian nation as defined by David Barton. And he's become so valuable to the movement that even multiple historians pointing out the fallacy of some of his historical arguments, he's even accused of having fabricated quotes, that doesn't seem to put a dent in his reputation to the leaders of the movement. And they continue to put him on top of all these initiatives like Project Blitz, which is a kind of legislative initiative that sort of floods state legislatures with all of these bills intended to degrade the separation of church and state and things like that. So that's David Barton. <laughs> Were you guys familiar with him beforehand? So I knew that a lot of homeschool curriculums had their own spin on things or their own set of facts, um, but I did not know where it came from. I didn't know it was all from a centralized source. You know, I followed some of this. I've watched Jesus Camp and, and, and things like that. But I didn't know that there was one or two people that were really kind of setting the stage for all of this. There are multiple sources, I have to say, and they have existed throughout history. But, um, you know, David Barton, I would say today is a celebrity in this space. But, yeah, the, the homeschool uh, world is really interesting, isn't it? I think that a lot of the... Christian nationalist movement might not be what it is today without the homeschool movement. Like when I was researching good news clubs, I found a lot of sort of regional leaders who are drafting homeschooled kids uh, as good news club leaders. You know, I think they sort of provide a volunteer army for some of the extreme initiatives. Have you guys done a lot of research into the homeschool movement? I just read a little bit about it. I was I was curious about it. Um, I don't think we've t covered it much on the show, though. But just quickly, before we go on my next question, um, for people who don't know, what's the Good News Club? Well, Good News Clubs are these initiatives that are uh, they're intended to convert little kids in their earliest, earliest years of learning their clubs, um, Bible study clubs, and they're intended to convert little children in their earliest years of learning to a deeply fundamentalist form of Christianity. They're sponsored by an organization called the Child Evangelism Fellowship, which has been around since the 30s and for many years operated all the places that were able to operate, you know, a practice our religion, if any, sorry, public spaces like parks or people's homes or in churches. But they started to enter public schools in large numbers. And today there are thousands of these good news clubs operating in public schools nationwide. And I actually got interested in writing about religious nationalism in 2009 when a Good News Club came to my kids' public elementary school. We were living in Santa Barbara at the time. So the, these clubs give little kids the message. They're led by adults who come in often from outside the school, and they teach little kids that they're going to go to hell without Jesus, and they <laughs> use their position inside the public schools to encourage the kids to recruit their peers to the club, and in many instances, to try and figure out which members of their class are not Christian and go after them and target them for really, you know, what I could only describe as faith-based bullying and bigotry. So I thought these clubs were wildly inappropriate in a public elementary school environment. Little kids can't make a distinction between what happens in their school and what's sponsored by their school. They think of it's happening in their school. 
it must be true and it must be what their school wants them to believe. So the more I learned about these clubs, the more concerned I became. And I was really stunned by their legal sophistication in particular, the fact that they'd managed to gain entry into the public schools where, you know, for many, many years, for most of their history, they'd been largely excluded from the schools due to concerns about separation of church and state. I published a book on the topic in 2012, and then I realized uh, as I kept digging that good news clubs and the attack on public education was really just one small part of a larger attack on America as a modern constitutional democracy. It's uh, very insidious sounding. So um, in your book, you discuss the connection between this Christian nationalism and uh, patriarchal kind of rule. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, the movement is clearly patriarchal. There's an exception. Uh, there's an element of the charismatic and Pentecostal world and maybe some subsection of the prosperity gospel world. These are different mm -hmm. religious movements mm -hmm. which tolerate women in positions of leadership. But Christian nationalism has largely and uh, normalized the idea of patriarchy at home and at church, the idea that men should rule in church and women should submit. You know, at church and at home, women can't be in positions of leadership, uh, particularly at church. So... In my book, I write about Ralph Drolinger, who teaches Bible study to at least 11, has, has taught Bible study to at least 11 out of 15 of Trump's cabinet members. So he's an especially ardent member of male supremacy and female subordination at home and at church. But he didn't invent this. He got his graduate degree at the Master's Seminary, a seminary in Southern California, whose leader, John MacArthur, was this very influential theologian and widely known. And he, too, was an ardent supporter of these ideas. So he's got this sermon titled, you can find it online, it's hilarious, called The Willful Submission of the Christian Wife. So you're supposed to submit and also smile while you're doing it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think if in most of the evangelical churches that drive support for the movement, if you dig into their documents that elaborate on their theology, you're going to find language advocating what they call male headship at home and at church. But, you know, they always couch it in rhetoric that allows them to pretend that they're actually championing women and that they actually support equity. But, you know, it's like separate, but, but equal or, you know, equal, equal, but different, different roles. They always say no rights, but we'll be nice to you. I promise. I know. Exactly. It's like, <laughs> oh, well, it's, you know, you should submit, you know, to your husband as, I don't know, they've got some theological construct that they promote and they make it sound really nice and that the, they call the husbands have to, it's leadership, but it's servant leadership where he leads her, but he's really serving her. But it's very really, kinky sounding. <laughs> it boils down to the same thing. But here's the thing. You know, you'll find a lot of young women in this movement committing themselves to it in the belief that they're actually helping women and not hindering them. I happen to think they're deluding themselves, but you have to understand this is their position. But, okay, so there's a really great quote from Phyllis Schlafly. It's like one of my favorite quotes. <laughs> Can I read it? A favorite. <laughs> do you mind? Cause it's Please do. It yes. shows a little bit of her thinking. You know, everybody knows, you know, remembers Phyllis Schlafly. 
Buckley is the woman who was a sort of anti-ERA, yep. anti-ERA. And she, our first bathroom bill freakouts. Exactly. So she was um, very much anti-abortion, anti-ERA, but she too had some kind of logic. And I just want to read this to you because it kind of stunned me when I read it. She thought, well, Earlier in her career, I just want to point out that it was the ERA that bothered her and not so much abortion. She only saw it as part of the attack on the alleged part of the you know alleged attack on family values. But she felt like she was promoting the dignity of tradition of women's traditional role within marriage. So she wrote, since women must bear the physical consequences of the sex act, men must be required to bear the other consequences and pay in other ways. She said, "So it's it's." Did she define those other ways? Because I would love to make laws for that too. Well, she said laws, <laughs> customs, decree that a man must carry his share by physical protection and financial support of his children, and by the woman who bears his children, and also by a code of behavior which benefits and protects both the woman and the children. So she's sort of imagining a time when things were great for. Women and men, everybody's happy with their roles. And for women, naturally, they'd just be happy to take on that role. But if they did, they would automatically be uh, protected. And as we know, it's absolutely has never worked that way. So, <laughs> so who, do, who do women need protection from if all the men are good? <laughs> I just thought that was a really interesting quote because it, it, it helps you understand her thinking a little more deeply that she really did believe she was arguing for women's dignity, even if uh, her arguments ended up sort of degrading rights for women in so many areas. So we're recording this on uh, February 23rd. This probably won't come out until about the second week of March. So I'm not sure what's going to be going on with the Democratic primaries then. But last night, Bernie Sanders won Nevada. um, And I watched his speech and he said, If we stand for justice, if we stand for compassion, if we understand that we are all in this together, then my family has to care about your family and your family cares about my family. And I just felt this like little spark of hope. And then I repressed it like I have been doing for the past year or two. Every time I feel a little bit of hope about the future. And then I thought, well, maybe I should. Who had something to say about hope? So this is what I was doing in the middle of the night last night. I went back and I watched Barack Obama's Audacity of Hope speech. And he has this line about how we all pledge allegiance to the same flag. And in that movie, Jesus Camp, I saw these kids like pledging allegiance to the Christian flag and stuff like that. But I figured since I was going to be talking to you today, I'll ask you, Christian nationalists, are they patriots? Do they pledge allegiance to our flag or are they more like Confederates? I think that the movement is really diverse and it's hard to, you know, I think it helps to distinguish between the leaders and the followers of the movement. I'll tell you that many of the uh, members of the movement on both sides that I've met really do believe what they're doing, what they're doing is best for our country. I think they want as much as anyone to build a secure and prosperous America. And many of them have just incredibly different ideas about how to do it. But I will say one thing. I think, you know, for a lot of the rank and file, you know, they really do want to, as I mentioned, you know, build a a better America. But I think a lot of their good efforts have been harnessed in service of a movement that's degrading our political culture, uh, dividing our country with religious animus and uh, putting us on a path to a more authoritarian 
a form of government governance in which religious privilege is enshrined by law and which is completely antithetical to the values uh, of our country and our constitution. Some members of the movement did not support Trump initially, like he may not have been their favored candidate. But one thing they're really good at is unity and getting in line when it matters. They understood that uh, if they were unified, they could win. And if they were divided, they could not. So, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier in our conversation, I was at events in the run up to 2016 where speakers would say, you know, look, we're not looking for a messiah. We already have a messiah. We just, you know, need someone who's going to win for us. And this election is all about judges. And um, I, you know, I'm not in a position to, you know, offer my political opinions or tell people how to vote. But I do think that it's really important to look beyond the personality of the candidates to, you know, who are the judges that they're going to appoint? What type of folks are they going to, you know, do they believe in science? Do, do they do they believe in climate science? Do they believe in equality, the values of, uh, of equality? Um, and um, so I think if we can all sort of look to those broader concerns, we might have a hope of unity. Where can people find more about your book? Oh, yeah, thanks. Um, you can look at my website, katherinestewart.me. You can buy my book on any at any major bookseller and many of the independent booksellers as well. That's and Oh, and I have a terrific excerpt uh, adaptation in um, the current uh, The New Republic. There's a wonderful adaptation. There's a great adaptations of some material coming out also in the New York Review of Books and in The Guardian and some other nice places. So um, thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure to, to join you guys. The book is The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. You should read it to find out things we didn't cover, like why a church would need FEMA money or how Catholic hospital ERDs have something to do with the maternal mortality rate. You can find me online at Miss Cherry Pie, P-I like the number pie. And you could find me at uh, Karen, U-H-K-A-R-E-N. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Feminist Coffee Hour podcast tackling political rumors from the feminist outer boroughs of New York City. If you like our podcast, please support us at our Patreon, which you can find at www.patreon.com slash feminist coffee hour, or, you know, do a Google for Patreon and feminist coffee hour. Our patrons get early releases of episodes, plus other cool perks at higher levels. If you can't support us financially, you can always give us a five-star rating on iTunes and write us a review as it helps the algorithm know we're there and that people like us, like you. Our intro and outro music is Making It Hard by Bridget Ellsworth, and you can find her music on SoundCloud.